When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Thanks to our very generous listeners, we've raised enough money to pay for a full year's worth of production and recording work. That's 104 episodes. Thank you all so very much. Today, Nate and Ed Legg dive into a new chapter of the 1980s based on Michelangelo Matos's book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. I'm joined once again by Ed Legg. So I guess I should say it's time for 80s roll because Ed Legg and I are discussing Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year. Ed, welcome back. Are you ready to return to the early 1980s? I'm certainly ready to 80s roll. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so tonight we're going to be talking about the first two chapters of the book, um, which focused on first the radio. He zeroes in on WPLJFM in New York, talks about their transformation from a rock station into a contemporary hits station in the early 80s, and then gets into the whole decline and fall in the late 70s that caused this opportunity to arise in the early 80s when the the record and radio industries sort of kicked themselves in the seat of the pants and started over and then there's a second chapter that talks about the um sony betamax versus uh, mca universal walt disney copyright lawsuit so we'll talk about the court ruling that allowed home taping to kill the music industry but did it i think we know the answer all right <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive in WPLJ FM, 
August 7th, 1983, New York City. This is where he zeroes in to start his chapter. And he's he's focused on Larry Berger, who is the program director of WPLJ. Berger had been there since 1974, transformed the station into an AOR or album-oriented rock powerhouse that was known for not just playing the usual Led Zeppelin, Who, Leonard Skinner, Rolling Stones, but a lot of softer ballads, including being the station that broke Mandy by Barry Manilow nationally, but plenty of John Denver, Simon and Garfunkel, even some R&B, Earth, Wind and Fire, Marvin Gaye, Steve Wonder, even Disco King Barry White uh, will be played on the AOR station. But by the late 70s, um, the, the market had gotten even more fragmented and bifurcated because a lot of stations... The, the adult contemporary format had come out. And this was sort of the air of the middle of the road format or the um, easy listening format, which predated rock and roll, which was what people wanted to hear Mel Torme and not Elvis uh, listen to. And then suddenly nobody wanted to hear Mel Torme, but lots of people wanted to hear air supply. And so that's the, the gap in the market that, adult contemporary stations uh, filled in. Do you remember the plague of adult contemporary? Was it a nightmare for you like it was for me? Or, Well, you, you know, it's almost like I'm, in, I'm looking from inside the mirror because I was under, I, and I mean, I'm as, as, uh, as sad as it makes me to see the way things went, I was, you know, kind of part of the problem because I was being led by the ear by uh, a an AOR station that had the, that was the flagship for the consultancy that, that, you know, caused this writ large. And what's fascinating to hear, you know, to hear you describe it again, to read it in the book is that I remember sitting in my friend's, my buddy's uh, kitchen after uh, spending the night over in, in Christmas of 74 and hearing Mandy and hearing Neil Sadaka and stuff like that. I mean, I remember I bought a Barry White record when I was in eighth grade the year before. And, you know, there was a big mix of rock covered a lot of things. And, and by 79, rock covered a lot fewer things. And, and you know, I, I, I remember just kind of how I, I wouldn't have said it then. I was, you know, I was still in my teens, but it's just amazing how the narrowing that happened, which I think was baked in the cake. I think when you start programming, doing the lowest common denominator, the denominators get, they get narrower. Yeah. It seems to be an unavoidable um, aspect of, of, of that kind of focus on what you're playing and, and manipulating the audience to come back to your radio station day after day. And, you know, Lee Abrams is, is the corporate rock consultants that were, that um, Matos brings up as, you know, Larry Berger was just controlling one station in New York. But yeah. there was a guy, Lee Abrams, who uh, basically invented the um, radio consultant and, and the AOR business model, radio model in the early 70s. He wasn't the first radio consultant, but he was the first one to invent the album-oriented rock format. And he's just one of these characters like who grew up in Chicago obsessed with radio playlists and would make lists, you know, by hand, you know, try to keep up with all the stations and figure out what their playlists were by hand. And you just kind of realize when you learn about people like this that, you know, some people are just geniuses slash obsessive freaks that that are studying these things that i mean anybody could have done what he did but how many people are in high school obsessively memorizing the playlist for every radio station in their hometown not very many and uh you know right and, and then he decides to go to atlanta where i happen to live and unleash it on my unsuspecting ears and pretty <laughs> pretty much determining my dating life for the next 15 years and even probably determining, you know, who would date me and who wouldn't. So, uh, you know, I remember starting to get, I, you know, I, I want to say crap, getting crap from girls I was going out with who didn't want to listen to 96 Rock, which is the Abrams flagship. And, you know, by that time I was starting to see things like hostility at rock concerts and, what what I uh, looked at it again today and what just really 
is painful is that this was a dumbing down that, you know, this was not Woodstock generation anymore. This is 10 years later and, you know, nobody's standing around watching Hendrix do his thing. You know, nobody's, I mean, Prince was the heir apparent in many ways. He was a lot like that, but you didn't see him at least at this point running up to the rock stages. Now that, that would change as we know, as we go yeah. through the book, but, um, but yeah, it, it, and I didn't, I, you know, you, you and I've discussed the, this effect and I've been hearing about this. I don't know what it is about the last year, just reading about it and doing some online research. And before I knew that, that this station was the flagship station for Lee Abrams was in, was in, and that consulting firm he worked for was in Atlanta. Before I knew that, I just kept getting these familiar feelings, you know, that, that, uh, perhaps I knew some about it because I just remember, you know, things like Boston and how ubiquitous the Boston album was in 76 and 77. And then to give, then it gives way to, um, foreigner, which gives way to in Kansas and then REO Speedwagon and Bob Seger. I mean, all these things just came in succession. Yeah. One after the other. And Abrams initial insight, I think was a pretty valuable one because he was coming up in the era like he, he hit his late teens in the late 60s, the freeform okay. FM era. And that was right. when, you know, sure, they're playing Steppenwolf and Credence and Cream, but they're also playing Ravi Shankar and Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys and and maybe some Miles Davis. So you'd have these, you know, 20 minute uh, Indian Ragas or a, a full 30 minute jazz um, odyssey. And then you'd get to hear Yes or Cream or whatever. And so his initial format was what he called the Superstars format. And it's yeah. many people consider that the invention of album-oriented rock. And that essentially just cut mm-hmm. out the non-rock. It cut out your Ravi Shankar, took away your bluegrass, cut out your jazz. The problem was that it also cut out, you know, it kept your Jimi Hendrix because he was already too big but with the white rock audience. But... It cut out your Parliament Funkadelics. It cut out your James Browns. It cut out a lot of your Stevie Wonders. I mean, obviously there were some stations that played some of that stuff, but there's yeah. this, you know, suddenly this wall of segregation falls and it falls on FM Rock Radio, um, and yeah, and locks this stuff in. But let's go ahead and hear our first song, and this is um, this is quintessential AOR Radio. This is "Caught Up in You" by Thirty Eight Special. And that was 38 Special, Caught Up in You, 1982, album-oriented rock blockbuster. And and yeah, and and, and for somebody like, for people like us that had grown up on Leonard Skinner and ZZ Top, to then suddenly get 38 Special and Molly Hatchet marketed as the same thing. Oh, you like Skinner? Well, you're going to love 38 Special. But it just didn't quite sound the same. Um, and... You know, as much as I liked looking at the Molly Hatchet album covers in the record store, uh, I was inevitably disappointed when I brought them home. It was not what I thought of Frank Frazetta, you know, Barbarian with an Axe uh, album cover was was promising. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's that's what we got. And, and so that's one mix, one ingredient in the radio mix in the late 70s. The other big ingredient is this rise of disco radio. And it, it really was this rocket and immediate you know uprise and and downfall because you know um and it describes one of the new york stations 1978 wktu uh goes all disco and it went from a 1.1 rate market share which is roughly the percentage of the audience share that the stations got to an 11.2 and it did that within one reporting period so in one quarter of a year and that wiped out uh, the WBLS, which had been New York's leading black music station. Frankie Crocker, the famous New York DJ, uh, was the king of 
WBLS and WKTU just wiped them out. And that creates this dynamic where WPLJ, the rock station we started talking about on this episode, then they move in more of a hard rock direction. As they described it, we're, quote, playing a lot of metal. But this is also a station that never played Black Sabbath, never played Iron Maiden. Metal, as defined in the late 70s, is not metal as we know it today. It included tons of stuff like Thin Lizzy, and Led Zeppelin was seen as a a, a fundamental, you know, definitive metal band. Yeah, that's how I still think of it. Yeah, yeah, and and Aerosmith and other other groups, ACDC, that are not seen as metal uh, by metalheads today. And then, you know, as as um, Berger described himself, he said, by 1980, we only played records by white people with long hair who played electric guitar. And even Billboard was covering it. Has AOR Radio become Lily White? I mean, 1980 Billboard article calling out AOR Radio for being racist about eight years too late guys that's it had already happened and um yeah and it, it's it's something i grew up with just taking for granted being born in 1969 i can remember being you know astonished to find out that my black friends at school liked black music <laughs> like i was <laughs> such a corn dog uh it, it was you know it just it, i didn't know anybody who listened to black music and 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 it you know, was was drummed in your head constantly that this was bad stuff, and and you know, so the early '80s were very revelatory for me. Hearing Michael Jackson and Prince, and pretty quickly realizing how wrongheaded um, I had gotten, you know, and childish naivete. I guess I can excuse <laughs> my myself. <laughs> well, but, well, I mean, hats off, hats off to you because. I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me what had happened. I, 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 and what I think part of what uh, softened it for me was I went to a majority African-American high school where whites were in the minority. So I was being exposed that way. And, but at the beginning of my middle school years, it was like you just described. There was plenty of, there was just as much on top 40, just as much um, soul and funk and everything, everything. And and then we worked because of, uh, I hate to say this, but partly because of the movie Deliverance and partly because of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, um, we were getting exposed to some hardcore country because all of a sudden it was okay for my dad to like bluegrass because that meant he wasn't a redneck as far as my mom was concerned. And that made way for <laughs> Willie as well. I'm glad oh. you're laughing. But, but I mean, very bourgeois, totally. But well, we've got that same stuff thing. in my own family. My mom was, you know, grew up in Roger Mills County, Oklahoma, literal yeah. cotton picking dirt farmer. Yeah. And she felt she was too good for country. And it was yeah. only, you know, as an adult who came back around to liking Johnny Cash and, and Hank Williams um, that she began to to open herself up. And when her kids started listening to country, then, you know, she would she would enjoy it with us. But definitely saw herself as a Glenn Miller person, not a Bob Wills person. And, and that, that's, sure, yes. That, <laughs> she was aspirational in her taste. Yes. And yes. But, but, you know, I did a, I did a, I worked for the student newspaper in my high school and one of the kids went and saw Bootsy Collins at the theater where I worked as an usher, which means I could have gone and seen him and didn't. I also could have seen Parliament around that time too, oh, but I yeah. ghost wrote his. I ghost wrote his review of Bootsy's, <laughs> uh, and it's like you know, why didn't I go see it myself? I mean, that was I was already, like I said, I was already being led around. I was I was already kind of a radio zombie, so um, I feel like I was part of the problem. I confess. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we're all just consumers in the in the marketplace and and have very little control about what information we're exposed to and and how we're led you know um by the people that are marketing to us and and devising this stuff and another big factor in this period was that all through the 60s and 70s the baby boom was this huge demographic 
wellspring of riches and numbers and masses. And so, you know, as soon as the first baby boomers hit high schools in the 1960, marketing to youth is a no brainer because you've got this huge population bulge that are, that are young and, and it, and it went on, you know, the, the, the bulge in our demographics went on into the early sixties. So there was a full 15 or so years of this, but by the late seventies, what they're discovering is that, you know, stations like WPLJ that were aimed at young males, they discovered they were running out of young males, that that in 1982, suddenly the American median age was 31, which was back up way higher than it had been, uh, I think, probably in 20 years. And yeah. that the, the 12 to 24 demo shrank by one third in the 1980s. So you go from the baby boom to this shrinking Gen X, which was just not that appealing, um, you know, a market because it wasn't that big. And and. Right. You know, but this combination of disco, AOR, aging AOR, like they're running out mm-hmm. of of good stuff, and they're you know they've 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 squeezed all the juice out of ZZ Top and and Leonard Skinner, <laughs> all those ZZ Top's about to have a big comeback, but and now they're reduced yeah. to to you know 38 Special and REO Speedwagon. Um, you know, Boston only put out the two albums in the first 10 years they were around, and, and the second one wasn't as good as the first one. And and so you're hearing a lot more sticks and Kansas and, and all that yeah. stuff uh, on, on the radio. And then that is one of the factors to the 1979 record biz going bust. And, and you know, the, there was a recession. There was the Iranian hostage crisis and the oil embargoes of the late 70s. But this was the first time that a recession had impacted the music industry since the end of World War II. So you just you just had this industry that thought it could do no wrong and, and thought it was recession proof. And they went howling into the teeth of the biggest recession of the era, um, you know, printing up. 12-inch singles that nobody wanted to buy. I mean, the the audience for 12-inch singles was limited to DJs, essentially, and they're printing up gazillions of, of disco 12-inch singles that, you know, and this is, by this point in time, Ethel Merman is putting out disco records, so it's... <laughs> <laughs> disco is, is way, way not what it had been just a few years earlier. Anyway, but let's, let's play our next song and continue the discussion. This is Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield. Love, of, Love is a Battlefield by Pat Benatar. And Pat Benatar is one of a wave of new young artists who managed to be novel sounding enough to get people's attention, but not so novel sounding they get the dreaded punk label, which at this point meant you were not going to get played on the radio. So you've got people like um, Pat Benatar, uh, Billy Squire is another one that jumps out that sort of... yeah refigured a new way to make hard rock that sounded new, use the new technologies. So it sounded like the eighties, um, but didn't, wasn't so weird and off putting that it's going to make radio programmers run away because they don't want to play anything that sounds like the Ramones or the Sex Pistols. So, you know, that was yeah. kind of the gist. What was your exposure to punk and new wave and, and the whole um, take on that culture? Clash? It was really, it, it- a lot of it was word of mouth. We and and we had Atlanta had like a, a it wasn't public television, but it was VHF back when we had two switches and you could go to the VHF channels. That's what. Had you mean UHF? I think VHF. Yeah, VHF was the main one. UHF was. Yeah. Yes, and Ted Turner owned one of those channel seventeen, and he actually early on when he bought that channel would come on and show you how to put an antenna on the back with a coat hanger. Um. And <laughs> they time. also had, they had videos, they had um, early, 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 like early seventies shows where 
they'd show psychedelics and play music on those UHF channels. Channel 36 was the other one in Atlanta. But um, somehow we got a, one of the things I was thinking about this today. Tom Petty and Blondie toured with the Kinks uh, around 78 and then 79. And then um, it kind of trickled in. A, it warmed, It kind of cracked you know, a few cracks in there and came in, punk did, and New Wave. And somehow we got exposed to it enough. And I was following a band that had a that was hard rock but had a new wave edge to them in Atlanta. I went to Athens. It might as well not have been a scene in Athens. There was one, but it was so underground that I didn't even know about it at that point, other than the B-52s, who had already left Athens. They weren't even in Athens when I got there, which was Yeah, they moved to New York pretty fast. Yeah. Yes, right. I mean, right away, unlike REM, those guys still apparently live there and several other houses across the world too but um what's interesting is you you played 38 special and i didn't say this before because i was trying to formulate what i was going to say i saw 38 special open for bands five different times from night from summer end of summer 76 till peter frampton 77 about a month before this leonard skinner crash and every one of those times the only singer in that band was ronnie van zandt's brother um, Donnie, yeah. which means Don Barnes, who's the singer, lead singer on Caught Up in You and all of their other hits, hadn't started singing yet. And I don't even know if he was writing songs yet, but but that's four years before the three years before Caught Up in You comes out. And it's a completely different sound. And it was very radio friendly. And just like Pat Benatar, it's not it isn't even an original 38 special. Yeah, no, it's, it's so, so no, in way, in no way, shape, or form is it is it Southern rock, and and they were one of many right. acts that um, right reconfigured themselves. I think the Police are probably the ultimate exponent of that strategy because they were a prog band or members of prog bands. Like Andy Summers had been in Eric Burden's New Animals in the late '60s, uh, and yeah. and they you know cut their hair, bleached it white. They had the look of punk. And then they got a whole bunch of effects and pioneered this sort of faux reggae, um, very technological. And I'm not, I'm not trying to diss them. They wrote great pop sure. songs. And, and they were very, very creative. Yeah, very innovative with what they were doing. But it wasn't punk or reggae. It was this new thing and had this massive influence on bands like Yes with Trevor Rabin or ZZ Top 2.0. Um, you know, yeah. everybody figured out, aha. This is what we can do. We can get the new sounds, the new equipment, the new drum machines, the new synthesizers and samplers, and and the new recording techniques, gated uh, snare drums, which I think it was either Phil Collins or um, Peter Gabriel that pioneered that. I think I want to say it was Peter Gabriel that did that first. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, this this whole new way of making sounds becomes a thing. And then in '79. Uh, the record biz goes bust. Eleven percent drop in sales from 1978, which is massive. I mean, just you know, a five percent recession really, really hurts. If you can remember back to you know 2008 or the last time we had a, a lasting recession that bad. So an eleven percent drop in sales is just murder. That that's pretty close to depression level uh, for that one particular industry. And you know, disco. Take took the heat for that. Everybody said, "Oh, we went too far yeah. with disco," and you know yeah. there was the the backlash at the um, Chicago uh, Detroit game, uh, the, yeah. the disco demolition night uh, in yeah. Chicago, and um, <laughs> you know and people like now Rogers are feeling pretty desperate. Now Rogers of Chic because suddenly Chic goes from yeah. being this platinum act to they can't sell records on their own, nor can he get gigs producing records. Now later on he's gonna survive and make his comeback work with blondie work debbie harry work with uh, madonna madonna's one yeah. madonna and david bowie are the ones who really broke broke it wide open for for the guys from chic but mm-hmm. you know uh by night but this depression goes on and on at like 79 there's a big sales bust 80 no recovery 81 no recovery in fact paul mccartney withheld his tug of war album for months until 1982 uh cbs records lays off 300 people and this is at the peak of walter yetnikoff's power so you know they were the the 
number one and number two label uh, up against Warner Brothers at this point in time. Platinum albums are down 10%. Gold albums are down 20%. But the savior is working on the plan. And the savior in this instance is uh, Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson, who are working on Thriller, which is the sequel to Jackson's Off the Wall album from 1979, which was one of the few albums from that period that did not suffer. Off the Wall sold 7 million units. Things are so bad, though, that Quincy and Michael are only hoping for 6 million sales for Thriller, which we can laugh now that it's yeah. gone beyond 30, but um, you know, the, their, their plans are relatively modest. But it made it, you know, it comes out in November of 82. It's platinum by January, sold a million copies, uh, or I guess a million dollars worth of sales. Then uh, number one album by February, but the interesting thing was that their master plan was to have hits in every format, including album-oriented rock. And Quincy Jones was very clear with, I need a My Sharona. My Sharona was the hit song by The Knack in 79, one of the few, quote, new wave songs to break it big. And, um, you know, he, t- he told Michael, I need a black My Sharona. And Michael comes back with Beat It. And they call it Evan Halen cut the solo uh the rest is history let's take a quick break from our sponsors and we come back we'll talk about the rest of the thriller radio plan and so beat it comes out off the thriller album uh and is quickly added by dozens of aor stations it's the third most added aor title in december 1982 after sammy hagar and bob seeger's latest and it's followed pretty quickly by Beat It, which is a straight-up R&B track. None of the concessions to rock that that Beat It had made. Um, I mean, Billie Jean, not Beat It. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Uh, sorry. And um, but stations like WPLJ are experimenting with their new format, and so they're open to playing things like Beat It. They're already playing Prince's Little Red Corvette, and and it's interesting to to read Berger talk about his test audiences because by this point, stations are calling up listeners and asking, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And I've always made fun of this because it's like you know you hold up a phone to a speaker and get the crappiest version of the sound of the song, <laughs> and ask some you know uh, you know as a young sexist I was uh, you know you call up some dumb housewife, and um, you know I'm no longer that sexist, uh, but that's how I thought when I was twelve <laughs> or thirteen, and sure. they you know and then play them something they can barely hear, and ask them what they think, and so WBLJ WPLJ found that you know the initial feedback was very negative but by the third week that their test audiences were loving this stuff and there was um you know there was holdouts uh they called them earth dogs that would write in these letters you know where's the real red-blooded rock and roll and 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 everything but the general crowd was down with michael jackson (laughs) people liked michael jackson in the early 80s this is the revelation we're bringing ed do you you remember your first exposure to beat it or oh absolutely um you know i'm i'm just i'm thinking i think i i remember to to back up just a little um 79 was um atlanta had a always had a one big outdoor festival every year in the summer and 79 was a year that a kid climbed up the flagpole at the Georgia Tech uh, Stadium, where they had the festival, climbed up the flagpole and uh, hung up Disco Sucks sign up. And it just played right into, the thing about the disco backlash was it played right into the Earth Dog mentality, which was also taking over. And um, by then, my buddy and I had gotten into punk and were starting to actually dress new wave. And we were both in college. At this point, we went to our last REO concert that summer to, as well in 79, and we stuck out like sore thumbs. At least, though, nobody threatened us like happened at, was already happening at Ted Nugent shows the year before. So, you know, the, the hostile male, white male had really become the rule in rock concerts, which is way different from Woodstock Nation, but jumped to what you were saying about Beat It, I was in Birmingham, Alabama, and that was the station I was getting for uh, my first 10 months out of college. I worked at an Alabama daily newspaper, and so I could get the Birmingham Rock Station, definitely AOR. The Who had just done a tour, and they'd been huge on that 
that who tour. So it was totally kind of in keeping with that. But I was um, in Birmingham on a Saturday and I was about to move to Columbus where I would get this total dose of, of Duran Duran and we're about who we're about to talk about. But I was in Birmingham in a drive through and all of a sudden Beta comes on. And at that point, it felt like Michael Jackson singing a Van Halen song. And that was my reaction to it. Yeah. And I love that song. I mean, I love, I love the way that guitar sounds at the beginning. And, and if it hadn't been, you know, part of this title thriller tidal wave, I would, you know, probably would have liked it the way I liked my Sharona. Um, and I'm not saying I turned against it because of Michael. That's not it at all. But I, that song, they were playing it. They weren't playing Billy Jean, but as you said, Billy Jean came out a little later. I've already moved to to a, a town in Southwest Georgia, a little bit bigger town, but it doesn't have that AOR station. It's much more of the the hits, um, contemporary hit station. And all of a sudden, I'm getting just the full dose. And Prince in 1999 was the big Prince album, so I'm getting plenty of Prince, Dexy's Midnight Runner. Well, I think they list a, a, in this chapter, they list um, all the songs that he added to, to WPLJ. Yeah. Every single one of those, every single one of those songs I heard several times a day that, that in 83, that's, yeah. that's exactly what I was hearing. And, um, and what you were referring to was with uh, CHR contemporary hits radio. That was just a new name for top 40, like top 40 had become. Yes. Yes. Uh, and yeah. so everything all becomes new again. And so the 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 top forty format was resuscitated as CHR, and you know it's getting. But the other big player that comes in is MTV, which is launched August first, nineteen eighty one, and and Matos has a statistic that's just totally telling. It played seven hundred and fifty videos, different videos in its first eighteen months. Only twenty four of those were by black artists, and. He's got this great quote from Bob Pittman, who was the boss of MTV at the time. Bob Pittman goes, I'm tired of all this, quote, racist stuff. Why doesn't anyone talk about the barriers we have broken down, like between punk, new wave and mainstream rock? And it's just like, dude, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's like he's so proud of himself. We got white guys to talk to each other, Uh, you know. (laughs) I don't remember a single one of those black artists, but I don't all I remember is Michael. That's Yeah, Michael was. The first one that they played to any significant amount. I mean, I think um, I've I've read in the past who they were, and uh, you know, it's like it's well, like that. Prince. Prince is well, another one. Prince, I I think they had played Prince before because they would use Prince to whenever uh, Rick James would go after MTV, they would say, "Oh no, we play Prince," <laughs> like <laughs> just to screw with them. But you know, by this point, though, the record industry has figured out. And figure out pretty quickly that MTV could move units, and that's and we've talked about this before. But all yeah. of a sudden in Wyoming, you've got a town with MTV, and they're selling the Buggles album, and they're selling Kajagoogoo, and and they're selling Icicle yeah. Works, and the the uh, record store in the other Wyoming town that does not have MTV was not. So it was very obvious, very quickly, and then um, you know. In April of 83, MTV finally plays uh, Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. And he had debuted that on um, March 25th, 1983 on CBS, on the the Motown 25th uh, anniversary special, which was mostly people playing, you know, old Motown artists playing old Motown songs. And Michael and his brothers did a medley of, of, of old hits. But then he says, but I also like the new stuff and kicks into Billie Jean you know, moonwalking and, and, you know, the rest is history. Everything's legendary, but let's go ahead and play another song that was, was big in this era. And this is one of the uh, members of the British, the second British invasion. This is the fix with one thing leads to another. And this is the kind of crazy new wave stuff you could hear on MTV and contemporary hits radio in the early eighties.
And that was one thing leads to another by the fix, one of the classics of the second British invasion from the uh, early 80s. And yeah, I mean, it makes obvious sense that Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson had a master plan when they made Thriller and the whole marketing of it. I mean, stuff like that doesn't just happen. People plan that stuff. People execute that stuff. Obviously, there was a lot of inspiration, uh, you know, but it was also a lot of planning. And it's just interesting. It's like the perfect case study. And, and you know, how do you make the biggest selling record of all time? Well, you you plan it. You, you put a song for every radio market and... Uh, you know, there's certain things like having Michael Jackson as the front man and, and this electrifying performer and inventive dancer who just encapsulated the era. Like, it's been interesting to go back. You know, Michael Jackson acquired so many negative images in my life and everybody's life between yeah. 1983 and now. But if you go yeah. back and you watch the videos from 1983 when he's He's only had one nose job. He's young. He's beautiful. He's this. And he's already been a beloved performer for, you know, 13 years by this point. And, you know, just blew the doors off. And and the level of fame that he got in response was even bigger and crazier than the level of fame. And I think, um, you know, contributed to uh, his his self-indulgence and downfall. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole uh, his, and his eccentricities for sure. Yeah. It, put it lightly. But, and, you know, he was the thing that gets me is off the wall was really good. They were really good. Oh, and, yeah. Um, off the wall is so I don't want to, I don't want to jump ahead, but he mentions how much the, the victory tour of 84 was, how similar it was to the 81 Jackson's tour when they were still up, I think. They were still as strong as as a group. And Michael hadn't gone out and become this, you know, mega mega star. But I mean, the guy was clearly immensely talented and a cutting edge performer and composer, and working with one of the best ever, Quincy Jones. And it happened to be good stuff. And I mean, and then it's got basically two years worth of hits that keep coming out and keep keep influencing. You know, it was kind of like. 1964 to 74 and in a couple of years, you know, boiled down to one album or one or two albums. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, you know, just an amazing accomplishment. And, and Matos talks about, you know, some of the other ingredients and that, and that Prince and Michael were just the knife's edge of a whole wave of, of cutting edge R and B that was coming out. We talked about Rick James, but we also had the SOS band you had patrice russian you had the gap band i mean uh you had cameo a great time for r&b plus like i mentioned you had this whole second uk invasion and people like joe jackson and men at work who are australian but you know effectively british for our purposes Uh, elvis costello uh you, you had the clash scoring big hits um and so all of a sudden, you know, you had to play this. And Lee Abrams was talking about there were fewer and fewer things you could play for what he called the Rock Coalition, which inspires Matos to, you know, contrast the Rock Coalition of the 60s when you had the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys, but you also had Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and the Supremes and the Temptations and Smokey Robinson and Marvin Gaye. And they were all being played on the same station marketed to the same audience of kids and um you know as uh, i think it's uh the manager of joan jett said and a quote matos has that you know by the early 80s radio plays music for the 14 to 18 year old audience the 30 to 35 year old audience the 50 to 60 year old audience or for white or for black or for chicano and only two out of the five stations are willing to play new records so they've got the audience super split and by demographics by age by race by background and then they're mostly feeding them oldies and the thing is when you do that you're eating your seed corn and that's what the record industry did like people love dream on and stairway to heaven and and Freebird. you keep playing it every day and people stop liking it as much <laughs> and that's what what they basically had done and um 
And the other thing that happens in the second chapter that that he discusses is that the Supreme Court rules in favor of Sony and against MCA Universal and Walt Disney. And this went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Sony won the first time, then lost on appeal, and then won in the Supreme Court. And essentially, the case was that if you sell a videotape machine that allows people to tape shows and then fast forward to the ads that you're stealing, that you're not allowing the TV stations to profit uh, and their advertisers to, to reach their audience. But the Supreme Court at that time ruled that, you know, time shifting does not constitute contributory infringement if the product is widely used for legitimate, unobjectionable purposes. So they're saying that the that the legitimate, unobjectable purpose of tape recording a TV show that came on your TV that you paid for did not infringe, even if you fast forwarded through the ads. And the record biz was just outraged and yeah, you know, they were working on all this stuff. And, and it's interesting that the way that the fight against cassette recording, because people had cassettes and they would record on their cassette decks, they would record radio shows, they would record vinyl albums. And the record industry acted as if this was the MP3 piracy that, you know, you're going to see in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And they yeah. had these over- overblown statistics saying that you know twice as many records are taped as are bought legally and and we're we're being bled white and all this money is stolen from us but it was controversial even people in the record industry um they shout out the main guy from island records uh island records actually sold their cassettes blank on one side uh, to encourage home taping and so, you know, not everybody in the record industry was feeling that way. But this, to me, is kind of the last time that the courts make a good decision in intellectual property yeah. and technology, that this is not what we see in the 90s. This is not how the rulings on hip-hop go. This is one of the last times when I think the technology is straightforward enough and the judges are, um, I don't want to say moral or ethical, but they're not bought. I mean, that's the right. reality of, of our legal system now is that most of the time the, the big companies can reach the judges. And so yeah. Yeah. this is one of the last sort of good legal decisions we're going to get in music history. Do you remember that whole debate about how home taping is killing music? Well, I, you know, I just I'm it's always going to come back for me to what I was doing with it myself, which was. I did. I bought a lot more cassettes. I had a cassette player from 1970 in a car from 1978 till um, the car that I bought in 95 and and drove till till 2003. So basically, I was still driving a car that had a cassette player in 2003. I probably didn't listen to cassettes anymore in it. But um, but I mean, I think I bought whole on cassette still. I mean, I bought a lot of things on. And even if I didn't buy it on cassette if i bought it on vinyl and i wanted to listen to it i'd tape it on cassette and then play it in my car i never gave anybody else a copy of it i wasn't selling extra copies you know online or and i never heard of anybody else doing that it was so um it was a it was an apt ruling and it totally fit with what we were um how we the you know the consumers my age in our 20s were doing with things like that and i mean there were there were a lot of it is it's true there are a lot of cassettes and i never thought that the cassettes that i bought from record companies were as good as the ones they didn't to me sound as good as the ones that i'd make make on my deck from my stereo so that was it for me it wasn't really um you know any sort of money making it also and we talked about this last time i think it was a lot easier being a, a musician i was in a band later in the 80s to actually traffic our music with a CD. We didn't have to get somebody to burn, uh, I mean, with a cassette. We didn't have to get anybody to burn it, uh, you know, or, or cut a record for us. I mean, most people, when if we did get any, we did get a tiny bit of radio play. Um, it was basically perfunctory, but it was a cassette we sent, and it was just way, way easier to decorate that up to make it look professional, everything like that. But, it, but you're right. I mean, the, the way... It's it's interesting reading that chapter, and Rehnquist was the one that dissented in that that big ruling that what a bad idea this was, and how this was letting a cat out of a bag, or you know that this was going to cause all kinds of things, and it didn't. No, um, it, not at all. And it, I mean, 
I made mixtapes and was given mixtapes and, and, you know, my older yeah. brother would make copies of his albums and evangelize to us, but we were looking yeah. for those, for that vinyl or, or, you know, the original stuff. I mean, having one copy, you know, uh, of a tape, I couldn't, you know, before you get to digital sound, the audio quality would degrade every time you made a second copy. So by the third or fourth generation, yeah. It's just mush, and so, uh, you know, the right. the whole argument against home taping was was basically specious nonsense. And this is one of the last yeah. times that the courts, you know, make a good rational ruling that then you can see from the fruits of it that this did not destroy the record industry. In fact, the record industry goes on to have uh, its best ever decade in the aftermath of this decision. And the same for the TV studio, the movie studios that, that the original VCR Betamax suit was about. But let's hear our last song. This is a uh, Denise Williams from the Footloose soundtrack. Let's hear it for the boy. And that was Denise Williams. Let's hear for the boy for the boy from the Footloose soundtrack, which was another apocal movie of that year. I would say that Purple Rain, Flashdance, and Footloose are the three big movie musicals of 1983, uh, 1984. I'm sorry, and um, yeah. you know, just had a massive impact, and and yeah, essentially figured out how to make a new way to make rock movies. Because originally you had, you know, the Elvis movies like Jailhouse Rock or the Beatles movies, Hard Day's Night or Help. And then after the Beatles, you get a generation of basically documentaries about rock music like Woodstock or Monterey Pop or Gimme Shelter. And then there's a wave in the mid 70s of, of spectacle movie musicals like Tommy is done by Ken Russell in this just totally overblown way. But by the yeah. early 80s, they figured out, oh, we can make a series of music videos and call it a movie. And and that's essentially what Footloose and Flashdance and to a lesser degree Purple Rain are. And it's it's a whole new yeah. way of solving the the singer perform movie performer, movie star um, problem. Very yep. different from approach they took with Bing Crosby or Frank Sinatra back in the day and definitely different than Jolson. But um, did you guys see any of those movies in the theater or were you too old for them? No, I'm glad you asked. I actually saw Footloose um, and I was a, I, the, the trailer. I really was attracted by the trailer. I was not a huge Kenny Loggins fan. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of my friends were, he was huge then. I mean, he was like Bob Seger or, or a lot of the other, he was, he was an obvious and then he he'd done the the theme for um caddyshack so but the i think the trailer was just really good because they made a they used that guitar riff and um, footloose to great advantage for the trailer and so i did go see that and i did like i enjoyed that i actually did see purple rain in the summer i succumbed to Flashdance in a drive-in. That was the closest I ever got to seeing Flashdance. How about you? <laughs> I saw Flashdance on cable. I want to Steph's point now that Flashdance actually came out in '83, and Footloose and Purple oh, Rain, right? Point. Or '84. Okay. But um, I didn't even see it till '84 in a drive-in. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I saw it on cable. Uh, I think I saw all of them on cable. No, I saw Purple Rain in the theater, but the other ones I saw on cable yeah, first. Okay. Good and, job. Uh, but yeah, and and and. Both Flashdance and Footloose, I felt I was too cool to be watching, but I still watched them. And, and you couldn't avoid the, the soundtracks at either one of those, and you couldn't avoid enjoying them really either, even if you did think you were too cool. Um, and then the other big uh, technological breakthrough, two other ones that, I, that Matos mentions in the second chapter that I want to mention is first, compact discs are out. This is the first year that they're a significant chunk of the market. It's still a very small chunk of the market. And they were twice the price of a vinyl or cassette 
uh, you know, the $20 versus $10. And they're going to stay at that price point for the next 15 years or 20 years. Um, and, you know, but only 800 CDs are available in the U.S. But by the end of 1984, they are aiming to have 2,000 available. And then the mm -hmm. other big um, breakthrough was MIDI technology, which uh, I remember hearing the hype about at the time, but not being a professional musician, I didn't understand. And when I would hear MIDI music, it would it would often be like you know video game music, like eight bit or sixteen bit, you know, dinky mm -hmm. little sounds. I didn't understand, but now I understand. What it did was that um, the difficulty with synthesizers is making them sync and play together, play in tune and play in time with each other. And MIDI made it very easy to plug in, you know, uh, you can plug in all your different synthesizers to your PC or your Mac and then control them all together. And so stuff that was like a massive, super expensive technological feat for Stevie Wonder and his team in the 70s when yeah. they banked multiple synthesizers together suddenly became very easy and 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 that's one of the midi is one of the reasons you you see this huge wave of british synth pop bands that were not well financed tech geniuses along you know to be compared with stevie wonder and the team he was working with in the 70s so um yeah so the tech the tech is moving along and the the, the formats are moving along so we're setting the ground for what's going to be a very good year in music in 1984. You got any final thoughts on radio and uh, Betamax and CDs? Did you have a Betamax yeah. or a VCR? I, I, I did not. And I uh, had a friend who worked at a TV station. They kept, they still used beta on, on, on some filming that they did or videotaping that they did. I, I did finally get a VHS and, and I was, I was a late adopter same with CDs. What I, what I find myself thinking about, though, is that the chapter that you know that we're talking about and all the technological changes, I didn't really feel them until I was in a band again at the end of the '80s, which is after this happened, when um, it had progressed a little more. It was '88, so um, I was in a band with a guy who really wanted us to go all digital, and um, that included pro programming drums, which I was not very happy about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a big and painful transition for a lot of drummers. So that's it for um, this chapter. I think next week we'll come back and we'll cover the second British invasion. I think that we can devote one episode to that chapter, which is Britain Rocks America again, January 23rd, 1984. That was the cover story of Newsweek. So for Ed Legg, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we'll be back next time to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Ed, thanks so much. Rock on. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, we're kicking off a special six-part miniseries about the three kings of mid-century American pop, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, and Elvis Presley. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 